Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. This season, we've been looking at food and diet, starting with how food professionals think about flavors and what makes a food more or less appealing. We've considered how individuals might use these ideas to build the capacity to modify our own diet without losing pleasure in food. And we've been looking at how health professionals apply insights into what influences food preferences when they're working with patients. Today, we're continuing that healthcare application by talking about cross-training and collaborations. Let's start with a sports analogy. Sports analogies are not this podcast's strong suit, but the more we practice, the better we'll get. Consider a rugby team. When you put together a team for rugby, you're looking for particular attributes in each position. You want some props who should, as best as possible, resemble human bulldozers, a second line who are rugged, tall, and have small ears, wings who can run very fast and never drop a ball, and so on. I can tell you from personal experience that if you put an undersized person in the prop role just because she can't catch a ball or remember a play to save her life, bad things happen. The sorts of things that drive up hospital utilization. These are specialized roles. In healthcare, there are specialized roles by aptitude and also specialized by rules like licensure and board certification. Some activities, such as writing prescriptions or performing open-heart surgery, can only be done by people who've been deemed qualified. Complicating things further, much like rugby, we don't have a lot of extra people available to step onto the field. This is where you get into the idea of top-of-license work. Essentially, when you have someone on a team with a specialized skill set that only a few people are qualified for, that person prioritizes those specialized activities. Now, there's a lot of gray area in putting this all together, and you can go too far into the role differentiation and end up with fragmentation, which we also don't want. Here's Dr. Katie Marvin from our Season 2 episode on e-consults describing the problem, and at the same time, bringing us up to two sports analogies in a single episode. I guess there's sort of two frames of thoughts. There's definitely some patients who want everything to be done in the primary care office. And then there's definitely a cohort of patients who really feel like everything needs to be outsourced to specialists. In my practice, I have patients and they're so used to seeing a specialist for everything, a gynecologist, a dermatologist, an endocrinologist, a cardiologist. And the primary care just sort of ends up being this sort of quarterback where you often don't even really need to see the patient. You're sort of like turfing a lot of information and notes and trying to communicate everything. But I mean, truthfully, it's just a, a tribute to primary care. Really, most of it could be managed by the primary care. The specialists are really necessary when there's something beyond that scope of practice. It's a lot of patient education goes into just saying, you know, we can do your GYN, your basic GYN care here, IUD placement, derm, skin checks, biopsies, even sprains, strains, orthopedic injuries, lacerations, kind of across the gamut of what we manage. In our focus on food and diet, when we talk about generalization, it doesn't necessarily mean one person doing it all. A first step may be building common knowledge about nutrition so that a team can be on the same starting page. Training for doctors, for example, has historically included very little nutrition education, much less cooking skills, a gap that's been called into question as the impact of diet-related health conditions becomes a top concern in U.S. healthcare. Here's Christine Hammond, director of the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative, who we'll hear more from in the second half of this episode. There are whole fields dedicated to nutrition science and nutrition implementation, but they're not necessarily how patients interact with clinical teams first. Usually that's you going to your primary care provider. And it's likely that the number of hours of nutrition training classically are, it's un, usually under 12. And so, you know, one night of great sleep's worth of uh, nutrition training for an entire career of seeing patients. 
That's basic medical training. Some physicians have a lot of food and nutrition knowledge. Some specialize in that work. Some may not specialize, but have a dedication to bringing an integrative medicine approach to their general practice. Some get certified in wellness coaching. Some are chefs. The policy question is where to set the baseline for minimum training. Is it a half day or something more? Representative James McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts, believes the answer is something more. He's proposed a resolution in Congress to direct medical schools to invest in nutrition education or put their residency funding at risk. Alongside the conversation about training for licensed health professionals, there are also opportunities for other members on our hypothetical health provider team. Here's Georgia Maharis from our season three final episode talking about community health workers. The way I think about community health workers is the individual who serves as a community health worker is from the community, part of the community, embedded in the community. And that's really where their connections are, where their you know, hearts and minds are. And while they might work at a health center, the link to that community is ex- is really tight and really important. And frankly, the part that has the most value because they are trusted within their community so that if they were to convey information back out to the community from the health center, their message would be received differently than say a generalized message that is you know, blanketing everyone in the state um, that doesn't quite have those same links and connections to the community there's an opportunity for community health workers to have a specific role around social determinants of health, like food, and really making sure that they are providing information around having the right types of food. So uh, a story that I have from a health center in Boston is that there was a challenge with diabetic patients. And the issue was that the patients were from a, a specific culture where carbs were very, very important. And so it was really important for those patients to have someone teaching them around what to do food-wise for their diabetes and their health related to that, that acknowledged and honored their culture and showed them things that were perhaps better alternatives in a culturally appropriate way for them. And so these community health workers can do that in a very honest and collaborative way because of where they come from and how they are associated within the community. That conversation with Georgia also touches on other positions that intersect with food and food access, like community health teams, care coordinators, and care managers. And of course, we've already heard from University of Vermont instructors who are teaching students early enough in their career that they don't yet know what position they'll end up in. Here's Professor Amy Trubeck and Food Lab Manager Emily Barber. We have an undergraduate dietetics program. And so our majors who are dietetics majors will get a certification to be able to move on and become an RDN and get an internship and do an RDN. We also have a coordinated master's program in dietetics that includes the internship program plus master's level work so that you can leave with an MS RDN. So all of our students in the undergraduate and the graduate program in dietetics will be going on to work in a nutrition field. Many of them do work in healthcare, particularly in hospitals and retirement homes and schools and those types of settings. And even if they aren't, you know, we have some nutrition students who are nutrition minors and business majors, but most 
people in their lives are going to have to cook for other people at some point. Say that we've completed the work of getting all relevant positions grounded in nutrition science, along with what's both an art and a science, of crafting a diet that patients will follow. Cross-training complete, we need a structure for collaboration. There are many ways to organize a team to work with patients on health-related changes to their diet. The University of Vermont Medical Center, for example, has shared appointments where patients with similar diet-related conditions meet together with doctors, dietitians, and other practitioners, as well as clinic days, where patients have a series of connected appointments with their primary care provider, dietitian, and any necessary specialists. The University of Vermont also offers an Integrative Health and Wellness Coaching Certificate. Certified coaches help implement change. A registered dietitian may prescribe a dietary regimen for a patient, The coach then works with that individual on the daily tasks of how to follow the diet and make a sustainable lifestyle change. We heard previously from Leah Pryor, chef and co-founder of Culinary Nutrition at UVM Medical Center, about how she partners with dietitians, each bringing their own skill set to sessions with patients. The dietitian consults with patients on their individual diet and monitors clinical markers, while Leah, as a chef educator, demonstrates how healthy food can be delicious. A lot of people say, well, how do you create your recipes? And the way I have found it to work the best, because I do work directly with a dietitian, is I ask the dietitian for the ingredients they want to see in the recipe. And I kind of call that my palate. And when I take that palate and I say, okay, so I need to be sure that there is extra virgin olive oil. I need to be sure that I'm able to, you know, incorporate some sort of nut. I mean, you know, like I just take a look at all the things they want to see in that recipe. And then I create the recipe from that palate. It works beautifully because it's not me taking my, you know, my French culinary background and saying, oh, this is what I want to do. Um, and it doesn't fit any of the guidelines that they're trying to do. So I, I really feel by just asking them, the practitioner, what they like to see, it really creates this harmonious process of creating really good recipes that then they can use that recipe as a tool to then educate their participant. Or put another way. One is bringing science and the other is bringing the power of yum. And when you bring those two together, really magic happens. In the introduction to this season, we heard about another collaboration model from Dr. Shantanu Nundi. His example was in the context of looking for tools to increase patient engagement and support for managing chronic conditions, conditions that affect 60% of American adults. In this example, he describes a telehealth platform that facilitates high engagement while building the best team to work with a patient on meeting their goals. I actually became a doctor largely because of my mom. My mom developed type 2 diabetes when I was uh, in, in middle school. And um, and she's had it for 25 years, and she's been on insulin for 10 years. And hardly a day, she's actually had her diabetes controlled. Uh, much to my chagrin as not only a son, but a doctor, <laughs> that I can't get my mom's own diabetes controlled. But what happened during the pandemic is as she kept hearing about how people with um, people with COVID and diabetes are at higher risk, she said, enough's enough. So she went online, she found an online uh, uh, program where she was given a a connected weighing scale and a connected glucometer and ketone machine. She was given a 24-7 health coach, so someone who can work with her on on her nutrition. She was given a virtual doctor who she actually saw as often as twice a week in the early weeks of the program. 
And she was connected really importantly to a peer. So my mom, we're from India. My mom has an Indian vegetarian diet. She was connected to someone who had an Indian vegetarian diet who's been successfully on the program longer than her. And the result of all that was 25 years of diabetes, 10 years on, on insulin. And for the physicians out there, 25 units of insulin. And within three weeks, my mom went to zero units of insulin. She got off of insulin completely. Virtual platforms organize collaborations, and they can also be used for cross-training. The ecosystem for professional development is a classic example. And yes, I believe we've reached a time when some virtual programs can be described as classic. It's the Oregon Trail of Continuing Education. The MAVEN Project is another example. This virtual network blends interprofessional consultations, which are collaborations to address patient needs in the moment, with education and mentorship to help primary care providers in underserved communities expand their skill sets for the future. Another organizing platform for food and medicine, one that will make intuitive sense to a lot of us, is The Kitchen. I'm Christine Hammond and director of the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative. And what is a teaching kitchen, you ask? A teaching kitchen is a learning lab for behavior change. Uh, it can be a physical kitchen, and, and honestly, most of them start as physical kitchens. And COVID in 2020 really forced a lot of our members to go online, but a place where people can come to and gather virtually or physically and learn techniques around culinary skills, food choice, uh, food preparation, mindfulness, exercise and movement through the methods, kind of classic methods of behavior change, including motivational interviewing. Beyond that, it's, then, it's, then it's flexible. Is that a class where medical students are coming to learn as part of their nutrition curriculum? Is it where patients are coming in because their doctor prescribed or, or recommended that they join a 16-week class to change their diet because of a disease state? Is it for a sixth grader uh, because it's an interesting part of both the science and nutrition curriculum? It looks a little different depending on the location, but all towards those same goals of learning how to make delicious food because it's uh, fun and we also know what the improved outcomes will look like. Those outcomes the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative looks for are both in patient health and provider knowledge. And the way Christine phrased that definition is important. First, there was a community of people who observed how a variety of approaches to encourage dietary changes led to better health outcomes. Then there was a demand to come together as a collaborative to learn more from these diverse approaches, making two levels of our cross-training and collaboration theme, what's happening in each individual teaching kitchen and what's happening across the broader collective that includes organizations as different as the Cleveland Clinic and the Philadelphia Free Library. There's two ways that I think we can tell the why the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative exists. One is the growing, obvious chronic disease problem we have here in the U.S. and around the world. And so much of that can be correlated to diet. And so thinking about how do we not treat just the outcomes of chronic disease when somebody's in a in the kind of an urgent disease state, but how do we get towards Prevented, true preventative health. And so much of that can be through good food. The other way that we can talk about why the TKC is we're not the only ones paying attention to this. The TKC was started out of a question posed at the conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, where David Eisenberg, our founder, asked in this conference that trains health professionals to learn how to cook uh, so they can teach their patients how to cook. 
wouldn't it be amazing if there were teaching kitchens where you could do this in your clinical settings? Is anybody doing that? And a hundred hands went up in the room. And so the TKC exists to bring together kind of the best leaders in this space who are thinking about using teaching kitchens as the learning laboratories to create behavior change through learning how to make delicious food. The conference continues to be offered. And when this episode airs, the 2022 session will have just wrapped up in California. Our show notes at plainerenglish.org will link how to sign up for 2023 conference updates. A biennial Teaching Kitchen Research Conference also takes place, and we'll link the information for their October 2022 session, again at plainerenglish.org. The Teaching Kitchen Collaborative members, which currently represent 45 organizations, share best practices, co-author research, and generally look for compelling ideas and how to help more people cook for health. They are also cognizant of how their network fits into the broader landscape of using food as part of healthcare. Teaching kitchens are part of a much larger and potentially broader food as medicine movement. And so there are fields that have been working in silo, uh, different silos from one another, lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, culinary medicine. Teaching kitchens can serve as the literal location where a lifestyle medicine practitioner would have a patient implement what they're talking about. Similarly, teaching kitchens are one of many partners in the food as medicine movement, which include things like medically tailored meals. So meals specific to your disease state and moving you through and out of a disease state, Uh, produce prescription programs, fresh food pharmacy programs. And to that end, we want to be a collaborator and really more of an open source resource for broader systems to utilize and, and plug into. And the TKC knows that education alone is not the silver bullet for changing diets and and behavior, there has to be a coupling and partnership around food access, the ability to pay for food, income levels, et cetera. But our, our part of this work is really around how to help people learn how to cook really delicious food in a way that is fun and exciting and brings you along a continuum of behavior change. One element of this collaboration that I want to highlight is in bringing together programs that cover different parts of the care continuum. We've discussed this before on the podcast, the challenge of supporting prevention and also treatment-focused food interventions. On one hand, the general philosophy for high-quality healthcare is to move upstream, maintaining good health and preventing problems before they appear, or at least before they can worsen. On the other hand, the majority of adult Americans have already developed a diet-related health condition and are somewhere in the treatment stage. The collaborative tends to focus on prevention as a common element across member programs. Our chronic disease numbers are only rising in this country. Care as is is not enough alone, and we need to move towards preventative measures, not just treating of disease states. And food is one of the best ways to do that. However, their members include programs that address multiple stages and goals, which all fit together into a holistic approach. We, the TKC, don't specifically have disease state treatment programs. Some of our members definitely do. So that's kind of the magic of being a collaborative between a bunch of leading institutions is different members are working on different projects. As a whole, I think teaching kitchens are meant to be much more um, expansive in application um, and utilization. 
I think there is a really interesting potential where if you think about kind of a continuum of care, say a woman who is pregnant finds out she has gestational diabetes. So there might be a moment in her care journey where medically tailored meals are a great idea to kind of get that gestational diabetes under control for the duration of the pregnancy. That might be an opportunity also to take some teaching kitchen classes of getting ready for when post-delivery, hopefully the gestational diabetes is resolved. But what does that mean for what foods you're eating when you're a new mom? And during breastfeeding, what does that look like in terms of healthy foods for a kid as they transition to solid food? So thinking about how might you link up medically tailored meals to teaching kitchens to maybe a produce prescription program to help support new healthy foods getting into the diet of a new mom and baby. I think it's a, a great potential example as what we might be able to do if we start linking these programs together. Leah Pryor, the chef educator who we heard from earlier and in previous episodes, sees the Teaching Kitchen framework as a key part of scaling up what's happening in pockets around Vermont and across the country. Expansion of the role of food and medicine is a UVM Medical Center priority that's been delayed by COVID-19 response, while at the same time, COVID-19 highlighted health disparities related to diet that demonstrate the need for rapid expansion. Hospitals are unique in that, unlike most primary care practices, they have a food service department. And the department where Leah is executive chef manager has for decades been a leader in the healthy food and healthcare movement. Having a team of chefs on your staff creates a particular on-ramp into culinary nutrition work. When Leah talks about expanding the reach of UVM's program, part of that is engaging healthcare providers who are coming from a different starting place. If we were in a perfect world and we were back in 2019, we were really on this path of putting our stake in the sand, of saying, here's culinary medicine. We're making this a real program here at the University of Vermont Medical Center. We're going to infiltrate every which area that we possibly can to show the importance of why food agency is necessary, why learning how to eat or having experience with food, like all of these things, all of these interventions that we can do in culinary medicine, why it's so important. And we really want to amplify that work. Amplifying the work, that's the key. We need to get that out there so that we're able to start to find other places where we can place culinary medicine in. We still don't really have a home when I think of the culinary medicine program here at the hospital. We do have a small teaching kitchen at the comprehensive pain program, but we don't really have a space. And that's that's really the dream is to find a space where we can have a teaching kitchen, where we can run all of these programs, where we can make it accessible to the public and where we can really amplify the work that we're doing. That's the next step for us. We have the talent, we have the content, but we're, we're always looking for our home. But I do want to say one thing, because when, when we do think about this on a larger scale, it kind of becomes larger than life. But when I think about culinary medicine on a smaller scale, you can teach culinary medicine with a cutting board and a knife. That's all you need. And a passion for food and also empathy for humans. If you can do those, if you have that, you can do it anywhere. But I'm just hoping that we can grow it so we can start to teach other people to then deliver this information. That's my goal is to teach more chefs to be chef educators so that when we are trying to get all of this content out there, that I have health ambassadors that are chef educators who are part of the process delivering that information. I enjoy an episode that can wrap with someone pointing out solutions with a capital S 
and furthermore, solutions that they personally intend to work on. When it's me, those solutions usually revolve around value-based payment structures for telehealth. And if you wonder what the heck that has to do with food, go back and listen to the Health Systems season intro. When it's Leah, our solution features a well-equipped kitchen home for a strong team of passionate, empathetic, talented chef educators cooking delicious food and educating. The world of food and medicine accommodates both visions for a better future, and many more in between. Keep that exciting possibility in mind as we get to the next episode, the season finale for this series of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. The way that I have chosen to explain to people how much nutrition and cooking education health professionals get in a standard course of study is that it is less than the number of hours I spend watching the Great British Bake Off in a given season. Do you have a more scientific way of, in a business as usual scenario, quantifying? This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.